Good morning, church. Good morning. Man, it is so good to be here. Good to be with you all. I love this church. I love the community. I love the, the company that we keep in here in this place. If you're new, we're so glad and excited that you're here with us this morning, too. Uh, for those of you that have been coming to SCAC maybe in the past six months or so, you can, or you still feel like you're new or you consider yourself new, I just want you to know that on February 26th, you might want to um, note that down. On February 26th, we're going to have what's called like a new guest or like a newcomer luncheon. And so uh, we kind of roll out the red carpet. We want you guys to feel welcome at home, get to know a little bit more about the church, get to know some of the leaders at the church as well. And, um, and so we have a really nice luncheon for you. So one of the things that Seattle is, is known for is Ezel's Chicken. Anyone Ezel's Chicken fans? Yeah, okay, yeah, good. So, <laughs> so we have like this big, huge Ezel's chicken spread with all the sides and all the stuff like that. And so this is for newcomers only, not for college students, okay, uh, unless you're new, unless you're a new college student, all right. But uh, that's what it's for. And so February 26th, that's a Sunday at 1130, uh, it's, it's just for you and we have a really good time. All right, so I hope you guys can come to that. Uh, I want to say a couple words of congratulations. I want to say congratulations to B and Christine. They are not here, but they had a baby, uh, baby girl that was born, uh, what, two or three days ago. So praise God for that. Baby's healthy, beautiful. Uh, I also want to say congratulations to Chris and Karen. They're here at this morning. Yeah, here today. They got engaged. Yes, hold up that ring. Yeah, nice, proud, awesome, beautiful. We're so, seriously, though, we're so happy, super happy for, for you both. Um, so we're starting, today we're starting a new series. Uh, called uh, The Blank Between Us. And basically every single week I'm going to fill in that word that kind of moves the series uh, along. Um, one of the things I was thinking about was before the election, okay, is that I was really just looking forward to the election being over. Because then after election, usually the politics then just kind of goes on a different level. People just kind of forget about it and then we all kind of move on with our normal lives, right? But apparently that is not the case. <laughs> apparently that is not going to happen uh, this particular four years, you know? Um, and so as, as things have been kind of progressing and, and moving along uh, with what's been going on in the national media and things like that, uh, one of the things, at least that from my perspective, I just feel like, well, nothing's really changed, right? Uh, it's just the same rhetoric that we hear, uh, the same voices, the same opinions, the same opposition, the same shouting, the same divisions, the same demonizing of one another. It's been just going on, I don't know, for forever how, how long. One of the things that's interesting for me then as a pastor, right, is just to kind of, as a pastor, is just kind of like survey the land a little bit, see what's going on in our church and see what's going on in the church in general. I don't know about you, <coughs> but <clears throat> if you've noticed this or even heard about this, but after the election, like just like the two days after election, there was this huge conversation within the evangelical church of whether or not some leaders and even some institutions, seminaries, whether or not they were even going to use the word evangelical to describe them. Anyone aware of that debate? No, okay, <laughs> all right, but this was something that was, that was huge because what they found out, what some of the data, you know, the data that comes out is that they found out that there was a large white, that white evangelical segment were a big, they came back together again because they were kind of, they kind of disappeared in the last election, but they came back together and, and they were a huge voting bloc that voted in Trump. And so obviously there's a lot of other people, a lot of other evangelicals, whether white and also a diversity of, of races, they voted for Hillary. 
And so this, there was this identity crisis that was happening in that moment in the evangelical church. And there was even, I don't know if you guys know, but Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller Theological Seminary, I mean, some people would say they're a little more liberal, but they consider themselves evangelical. They even put out a statement. They put out a formal statement to the public and to the press. This really long, about three or four paragraphs saying, why we understand, you know, that, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's difference of opinion in the church and things like that. But I think in the end, we're going to stick with the word evangelical to describe ourselves. I mean, a seminary puts out a statement like that saying we're going to continue to use that word evangelical. But there's a lot of evangelicals who do not want to use that word anymore to describe their affiliation, how they affiliate with church. So there's a lot of division going on. And so as these things go on, I kind of look at our church as well, and I think, wow, we're, we're kind of divided too, or we have our own different ways that we're going to deal with what's going on. But the way that I see the church dealing with what's going on in, when it comes to the culture and hot-button issues is, to me, also pretty much the same way the church has always dealt with hot-button culture issues. Uh, and so there, there's one of two camps, and they're both extreme camps. There's one of two ways that Christians and churches normally deal with these type of cultural hot-button issues. The first way that uh, Christians respond to this is um, they stand. You stand for a biblical worldview, okay? So there's all these things going on. There's all these conversations going on. And we say, okay, what we need to do is we need clarity. And as a church, let's be salt and let's be light. And let's bring clarity to this world that's falling apart. Okay? And so the first one is, you can go to the uh, next slide, is one response is Christians say, well, I'm going to stand up for the biblical worldview. And so people will post stuff on Facebook of their biblical worldview. You have arguments on Twitter, post articles of other people's articles that, are, that support your opinion. And with the click of a mouse button, you just throw shade on people, right? Shade, 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 right? And then you also end it with a Bible verse that supports your particular view. Now, that's fine. The only problem is, I, and I don't know if people are aware of this, but did you know that there is not a one biblical worldview? Because a lot of people, when they use that term, because they, they've used that term with me, and they say, Roy, you know, I, I hold to a traditional biblical worldview. And so right when you say that, you're, you're telling me, oh, there's one way to frame what is going on in our world. And here's it, here's the frame, here's the tradition, here's what the Bible says, and that's it, right? So, for example, it goes like this. I hold, for example, I hold to the biblical worldview that abortion is wrong, and because abortion is wrong, we need a conservative Supreme Court justices, therefore I voted for, who did I vote for? Trump, okay, right? That's a biblical worldview. People have told me, I hold to a biblical worldview, therefore I'm, hold, uh, therefore I'm voting for Trump. But I also, there's these other people, right, who also say, I hold to a biblical worldview. We're supporting the alien, the immigrant, and the poor. Where there's also other, this mass genocide of generation after generation who are being, okay, su suppressed. And you voted for who? Hillary, right? They're both coming from a biblical worldview. Who's right? Who's wrong? What's really important, because we have to watch our language a bit when it comes to this, you have to understand that there is not a biblical worldview. There is not one constant, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-filtered biblical worldview. Worldviews actually change throughout time. What there are, there are biblical truths. There are absolute truths. But truth is applied through people. And truth is applied through a social 
an economic, a cultural, a historical, a racial, a contextual, a theological lens. Now, if that all seems like a lot, I think you just kind of get it. It's just like you have perspective. You grew up in a certain place. You grew up in a certain neighborhood. You're educated differently. It's all about perspective. And we take that truth and we apply it to our perspective. In fact, that's how we read the Bible. I mean, we have these cohorts, and that's one of the, week one or week two. We talk about how do you read this Bible? This Bible was not just like God was up there and he wrote it. It just, you know, uncluttered by all of the cultural, uh, you know, chaos in the world, and he brought it to, down to us. No way. This Bible was written in the midst of persecution. This Bible was written in the midst of huge political forces and, and, and waves affecting people. And we have to be able to exegete what the writers were saying through their political, historical, contextual, literary lens. What does that mean for us? Is that you've got to exegete yourself a bit. You've got to say, you know what? I, I'm not the only one with the opinion. I'm not the only one that, that has, you know, the, the corner rights on, on, on the particular what the biblical worldview is. Let me put it, this, put it this way. Your worldview as a Christian, Asian, college degree, upper middle class, evangelical vantage point is going to be different from a, let's say, a Christian, just as sincere. They love Jesus more than you do. Christian, Mexican, impoverished, immigrant, Catholic vantage point. Both would be equally wrong if they would say, this is the biblical worldview and why you should vote for whoever. They would be more, both would be more honest to say, this is my personal application of scripture. That's a lot more fair. Now, just to help you understand, because, because there may be some of you like, no, no, biblical worldview, like that's it. Like that's, we need to have a biblical worldview. I want to help you understand, this is very important, because if you, if you are staunch in a biblical worldview, you will not be able to move anyone. You will not be able to enter into conversation, because you're not making room for others. Biblical worldviews change over time. Biblical worldviews radically change over time. So let me just give an example. I could use the language. I actually never use that term biblical worldview when I talk to people. But I, would, I could say something like this. If I were to use that term, I would say, you know what? My biblical worldview is that I think that studying Scripture, that the, the study and memorization of Scripture is central to a believer's spiritual growth. Everyone say amen to that? Amen, amen right? right? Did you know that what I just said has not been the biblical worldview for at least a thousand years? That what I just said right now, which we all agree is the biblical worldview, that that actually was not in the mind of Christians for at least a thousand years. In fact, if you study also William Tyndale a little bit after, after the Reformation, when he tried to translate the scriptures into common English so that people could understand it and read it, did you know that the church sought him out? They strangled him. They killed him for translating the scriptures into, uh, into, uh, into English. Isn't that crazy? During the time of the Middle Ages especially, the, the church, the, the, there was only one church at the time, the Catholic Church, they said that this book and the scriptures were too complex, uh, maybe a little bit too holy for the common, ordinary people to understand. The only people that were allowed to interpret this were the priests, the bishops, and the pope. That was the world view at that time. Does that make sense? So if we were to talk, and, we were to say, and if I were to say, 
back then, I would say, and I just said what I said, the biblical worldview is that every person needs to know this and memorize this and study this in their heart, you know? It would be like, heresy! Heresy! That's only for the priest and the pope, and they have that. Does that make sense? You see how that biblical worldview has changed radically? Let me give you one more, just, so, just to maybe update it just a little bit. There's a scripture passage, 1 Timothy 2.12. And this particular passage has been just like the thorn in the side of the church for a long, 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 long time. Okay, let me put it up here so you can see it. <clears throat> it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. This particular verse in just the history of the church, ever since Paul probably penned this, right? It's just been, what are you saying? What does it mean? How does this apply? And church theologians have wrestled with this in specifically of what is the role of women in the world and what is the role of women in the church? Are they allowed to preach? Are they allowed to lead worship? Like what kind of authority does a woman have? You know, where is the woman's place uh, in the home? Okay, and so what is the biblical worldview of women? Let me share with you what the biblical worldview of women has been for over a thousand years. This is St. Augustine. Okay, a lot of you maybe at least recognize the name. There's some, some famous theologian, okay? Yeah, good. That's good enough. He's some famous theologian, all right, who had a lot of influence on the early church. This is what he said. He said, this is his commentary, part of a commentary, his words on this particular verse. He said, and Satan first tried his deceit upon the woman, making his assault upon the weaker part of the human alliance. Okay, he's not mincing words here that he might gradually gain the whole, he means that he's trying to, uh, let me read that, that he might, that Satan might gradually gain the whole and not supposing that the man would, would readily give ear to him or be deceived, but that he might yield to the error of the woman. So he's saying this, Satan would never have tempted the man because a man is smarter than a woman because a woman does not have the rational capacity to be able to see the deceit that the, that the evil one would have. And so in order for the man, in order for the devil to trick and, and cause the fall to happen and for the, to, for the man to succumb, he would trick the woman because she is the weaker partner. And maybe the husband would listen to the wife and then fall. That's St. Augustine. That's one of these people that people quote all the time as like, you know, the most learned guy, you know, progressive guy, whatever, you know. This is the biblical worldview. And if you go through, and I, I, get through, I gave you this one because this is early on. I mean, St. Augustine was, a, I think, a third, third century. If you look at the history of this particular Bible verse of interpretation throughout history, it's the same thing. I've done my research, too. It's the same thing. Women are always seen as inferior. It, they, they use, the, women are equal, but inferior. I don't understand it. Anyway, that's, that's the language they use. And that is perpetuated historically in the church. So much so that it wasn't until 1920 when women earned the right to vote. That was not, guys, wake up. That's not even 100 years ago that women were given the right to vote. Do you know why they weren't given the right to vote in the U.S.? I mean, the U.S. Is, I mean, obviously was not, you know, was not around for this when, when this was written. Why? 
because it was that same prevailing worldview. And it was, guys, it was a biblical worldview that women did not have the capacity to lead, that women did not have the rational capacity in order to make a firm decision on vote, that the world of politics and the world outside of the home was the realm of men, the world inside the home. And I read some commentaries, some other things were the quiet realm of the house. I don't know whose house that was, right? Because my house is not quiet. I got two kids, all right? It is not quiet. But the quiet realm of the house is where the women are supposed to be. Guys, that was the prevailing biblical worldview, even in the United States up to 1920. And so biblical worldviews change radically. Think about this. If you're a woman today and you voted because of your biblical worldview, you voted Democrat because of your conviction of your biblical worldview. And if you're a woman in this congregation and you voted and you voted Republican out of a biblical conviction that that's the right way. Did you know that out of biblical, that you wouldn't even have the right to vote if we held to a traditional biblical worldview? Worldviews radically change, even in the church. And so when we use this phrase, I hold to a traditional biblical worldview, you need to be a little bit more careful because you're kind of saying this has always been the worldview, and it has not. And worldviews change, and people's opinions change. And a lot of Christians, we go into this camp, and so everyone's arguing their ideology, whether you're on the left, you're on the right. There's very, there's, I don't know if there's anyone in the middle, but you're either on the left or the right, and you have all these different voices. And so when Christians enter into that space, what happens? Well, you're just arguing from your vantage point as well. You're bringing in your quote-unquote biblical worldview, but your worldview is historical. It's, it's happening in a place. It's, it's cultural, right? It comes from your social economic background. You're just another voice in a sea of opinions, and it all gets lost. And because there's no agreement, even on the Christian biblical point of view, it gets even more confusing. So, that's one. That's the first way that the church tends to respond when it comes to hot topic issues and issues in our culture. The second response is this. The second camp is this. Ignore it. I don't care. Stop bothering me. I've got bills to pay. I've got kids to raise. I've got deadlines to meet. I've got dinner to cook. I've got grass to cut. I've got a dog to walk, right? Who cares? Stop bothering me, right? Um, who, says, who would say, man, I'm in this camp? Anyone want to anyone raise their hand and agree with me? No? Okay. Wow. I'm the only one. Okay, I just confession time. That This is me. For the majority of my Christian life, right, and I came to Christ in college, I'm just like, just forget about these things in culture. Let's just focus on things just happening around the church or just things that are happening around me. It just doesn't seem to matter. People are arguing all the time. Nothing ever gets done. And there's been debates in the church, even last year um, on the, one of the Christian leadership magazines, they have this whole, whole art, the whole um, uh, uh, magazine was this debate of whether or not churches should be involved politically or not. That's all it was. And there were some pastors who said, yes, churches should be deeply involved in the political process. And there were other pastors who said, churches should, you should just, should not even talk, be talking about politics in the church, right? So what do we do? And what happens is that believers, we tend to fall into one of these two positions. 
Apparently, you guys are a lot more involved, and that's great. People have asked me, right? right? I mean, if, if you're, you would have to choose between two worlds of whether or not you're going to be involved as another voice, or if you're going to do nothing, which both are equally ineffective. Nothing gets done. But if you had to choose which camp you're going to be in, I'm going to say go for the biblical worldview perspective. Go for that perspective. You know why? Because at least you're showing up. At least you're living in a world, and you understand that your world needs to be bigger than just you. And so at least you're showing up. At least you're doing something. But, but, but here's the thing, is that if we fall into one of these two camps, both places are ineffective to actually bring, to bring change. You might want to put your argument out there, right, on social media. You're never going to change anyone's mind on social media, right? Because every person is a stranger. Every person is a straw man that you can easily take down with your argument, right? And if you were to argue and strong arm your way and get power, what happens? All you do is entrench your enemy, your opposition, to be further entrenched in their position. And they're just waiting for their turn. They're just waiting for their argument. They're waiting for their turn when the, when the balance of power shifts back. And the cycle continues on and on, arguing back and forth, back and forth, until, until, until. Let me tell you what, where it ends. It always ends in violence. It always ends in violence. Someone with a fist. In Taiwan, they always take off their shoes. That's how they do it there. And guns. That's where it's going to keep going. That's where we keep going if we do nothing. That's where it's going to go if we keep arguing. It always ends in violence. It doesn't, there is a stop. It always ends in someone getting hurt really bad. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, if we look to Jesus, if we look to Jesus, we realize first that Jesus too that he was born, he was not born into a politically neutral world. When you read and study the scriptures from, from cover to cover, it is filled with political overtones. It is filled with geopolitical, transnational type of issues that move people, that shape how they think and how they speak. In fact, Jesus himself, where he was born, right, was due to a political decree by the Roman Emperor Augustus, where he says, I want all the people to be counted to go back to your hometown so you can go back and be counted and pay a tax. So Jesus travels to Bethlehem. His birthplace is determined by a political, uh, a, a political executive order. Jesus and his family, this is about two years later. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus and his family, he's about two years old. They have to flee political persecution because King Herod has found out from the Magi, remember that? That a son has been born, the one who's prophesied to be the king of the Jews. Herod wants to kill the king. And so he has this little genocide in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph have to flee. They become refugees. They become immigrants in Egypt and have to live there for a while. Eventually, Mary and Joseph, they are able to immigrate back to Nazareth and Jesus' whole life is lived <clears throat> under Israel, who was under Roman occupation. 
Jesus knows politics. And so in the middle, it's very interesting, it's in this type of climate, in the middle of foreign occupation, unjust religious practices, unjust political actions, rumors of, resurrect, of insurrection. There's a lot of people who were trying to overthrow the Roman Empire in Israel. Jesus, in his seminal sermon on the kingdom of God, he announces this. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, understand, there were so many different sides in his political time. There were liberals, there were moderates, there were conservatives, there were ultra-radicals who just wanted to kill people so they could get their freedom. There was a side to choose. There was a right side to choose. There was a wrong side to choose. And Jesus says, I'm not picking really any side. But in the midst of all of this turmoil and political turmoil and cultural turmoil, Jesus announces the kingdom and says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called not Democrats and not Republicans, because I don't know really a lot of Democrats that are known as to be children of God or Republicans that are really known to be children of God. But what's going to be distinctive about God's people is that would be peacemakers. And those who are peacemakers then would have this reputation of being, wow, they're like God-like. They're like children of God, these children of God. See, I agree that followers of Jesus, we all, we have a place at the table. You have a voice that needs to be heard. But what I want to challenge you with today is that maybe your voice is not just to impose, again, like I said, your biblical worldview, which is a false understanding of what you think has been historically correct all these years. It is a culturally contextualized personal opinion, just like everyone else who is fighting for their side of the coin. Everyone thinks about who's got the better argument, who has the best logic, who's best at shouting. Jesus said the distinguishing voice in the middle of cultural political chaos is the peacemaker, the harmonizer, the reconciler, the bridge maker, not the bridge burner. They will be known to be God's children. Have you noticed Right? With all of the rhetoric today, there is definitely a left voice. There is a right, a right voice. There is a black voice. There is a white voice. I was watching some YouTube videos on some of these white voices. They are some, they are some scary, scary stuff. There's Asian voices. There's all these different voices seeking to be the loudest voice. But one thing that's just missing when I read scripture is I'm missing, we're missing this voice. Matthew 5, 9. Where's the peacemaking voice? I have not seen one person, I have seen not one seen organization that has distinguished themselves as the reconciling voice. There, I haven't seen one person, one group says, you know what, I'm going to take and do the real hard work of getting to know you, build a bridge to you, and I'm going to build a bridge to you. I'm going to bridge to, yeah, yeah, even you, you know? And I'm going to try to do the hard work of bringing us, like, all together at the same table so that we can see that we're actually human instead of seeing each other as straw men and straw women and just another argument to knock down. I'm going to actually do that work of getting to know you and understanding what your personal perspective and why it's that way and actually bringing together so that we can actually sit at the table and act a little more human and treat each other a little more humanly 
to understand each other. And then maybe, you know, have you, have you, you've had those moments. All of us, you've had those moments where you thought someone who, you, who was your enemy was a particular way. And when you sit down and hear their story and listen to them, all of a sudden, all those things that you want to argue with them about, they just kind of fade away. You're like, why was I making that a wall between me and them? And those things don't even matter anymore, and you're actually able to have a normal conversation in order to look at the real issues of why you might be divided. Everyone is fighting for their piece of the corner, for their, for their turn at the mic. That's how it was in Jesus' day. And I know there's some of us who want to say, well, Jesus wants to tell us, well, here's, here's that right way. And it's going to be a particular voice. It's going to be a particular thing on the, continu- on the political, political spectrum. And Jesus, he drops the mic and he says, none of that. You need to be the distinctive Christian voice is to be the peacemaker voice, is to bring people together, is to be a reconciling voice. Now, when you look at our political <laughs> process, you, you're looking at it like, it's impossible. You want people who, with opposing views to come together and actually talk and be friends and make up. Like, that's just, that's just not possible. What world are you living in? Okay, look, it's completely possible. Reconciliation, having conversations, bringing people together who have opposing different viewpoints are, is completely possible. You guys do it every day. You guys do it all the time. You know why? How I know? Because a lot of you guys are married. You do a lot of reconciliation every single day with two people that are completely different, and you're married, and you got to work it out. You know, a lot of you guys know that my, my wife, that, that Angel, she was uh, in a car accident uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, when that happened, I was about, I was in, I was in Chehalis. I was about 100 miles south. I was on my way to, to Cannon Beach to, to, uh, to a board meeting, and so I get this phone call, and Angel, she's She's on, she says, Roy, I just got into an accident. She was kind of speaking, kind of stuff. I just got into an accident. So when she said that, she was talking, I was kind of thinking, well, I didn't know, but, you know, is this like, you know, this this accident happened an hour, two hours later, you know, two hours ago, you know? She's like, no, I'm in the middle, I'm in the middle of the road right now. It just happened. The car is there. I don't know what's, you know, I'm disoriented. I don't know what's going on. And so, of course, as, as the loving, caring, and sensitive husband, I asked, what? Are you? Right. No, no. I asked, whose fault was it? That's what I asked. <laughs> I, that, that was my first, that was my first question. It's like, whose fault was it? And immediately then I said, are you okay? All right. So it was, it was really quick, but not the order matters. The order really matters. Um, I had to do some reconciling. Okay, I had to do some peacemaking, right? We do it all the time. It's completely, completely possible. It's just we don't want to do it. Because when we look at the other person on the other aisle or whatever it might be, we just think of them as the enemy. We demonize them. And, and Jesus' words are, if, if we decide to stop just being another angry voice or, or stop putting our heads in the sand and be a bridge builder, a bridge maker, a peacemaker, that, that that will be our distinguishing place as children of God to be in the world and yet not sucked into the world. And these are Jesus's words, again, in a very political climate. And this is Jesus, who is also our God, who has also provided that ultimate example for us, because this is how it's been. 
God and people have always been at odds. We particularly have always been at odds with God. We don't like God. Ever since the fall, ever since the fall was God, we just, we just want to live our own lives. Stop telling us what to do. We just want to do it ourselves. Stop putting any, you know, we just want to be completely free. I know he gave us all the trees, you know, to eat in the garden. I mean, he gave us everything. He gave us a whole land, everything. But there's that one tree we can't eat. Well, we want to eat that one too, you know. I mean, give us more freedom. We want to have complete freedom. Do what we want to do. Mankind and God have always been at odds. And I've explained this countless of times before as we preach the gospel over and over again. That since the fall in the garden, that God has been working tirelessly to build a bridge towards us. He has been working tirelessly to reconcile us, to bring the two warring parties at peace. Humanity, humans, we are sinful, we are broken, we are messed up. I'm the first to, first to, you know, to admit that, right? But God is the one who built a bridge. He's the one who built the bridge towards us. John 3.16 says this, right? So, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him. And so God, because he loves the world, he, he loves the world, and so he sends. He loves the world. He loves you. And so that's why he bridges. He loves the world, and so he gets to know you instead of just condemning you. And so what does he do? He sends Jesus. So that whoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then verse 17, and this is the one that a lot of us know John 3.16, but I'm just saying historically right now in this day and age, you need to know John's, you need the next verse, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. In other words, Jesus, God didn't send Jesus and said, you know what, I'm coming because I, I want you to know that I'm boycotting you now. I, I'm, I'm going to do this to the human race because you guys are way too messed up. God didn't send Jesus with a message of turn or burn. God didn't send Jesus to come to win an argument and tell us right, who's right or wrong. He says he came because you all need to be saved. It's much bigger than just your political viewpoints. You all need to be saved because we're so broken. Church, isn't that good news? It's good news. Amen, right? That God was always seeking to make peace with the enemy, and that's us, because God loved us. Those that hated him, that rebelled against him, ignored him, disdained him. And God was the bridge builder, and Jesus himself was the bridge. God was the great peacemaker. And if there's the love of Christ in us, then how much more should that love of Christ flow out into this world so that our place can also be peacemaking and bridge building instead of bridge burning? I want to show you just really quickly. Oh, my man, we're, we're running out of time. This is a picture of a bridge, okay? This is a picture of a bridge. What's wrong with this picture? Okay, the picture is in the wrong, the, the, the bridge is in the wrong place, okay? Somebody built a bridge in the wrong place. Can you believe that? That's crazy, all right? Someone built a bridge in the wrong place. All right, let me tell you what happened. This is uh, the Choloteca Bridge in Honduras. What happened was that in Honduras, you get a lot of hurricanes. You get a lot of really crazy weather. And so when they built this particular bridge, this bridge was built to spec, to withstand any hurricane, any uh, torrential flooding that they would have, commonly have here 
in Honduras. In 1998, Hurricane Mitch roared through, dumped, it was one of the worst hurricanes ever, dumped 75 inches of rain in less than four days, destroyed 150 Honduran bridges, but not the Cholotuca Bridge. This one survived, okay? This bridge was in near perfect condition. Can you believe that? 150 bridges destroyed. This bridge was in near perfect condition. But what you can see, because you see the, 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 white, the zoomed out view, right, is that all of the roads got washed away on both sides of the bridge. There's, there's just no semblance of, of any roads on, on both sides. Everything got washed away. The flooding was so wide and was so massive and was so torrential that the river, the Choloteca River, okay, actually carved a new channel. The river changed. So when the waters receded, the river receded into a new channel, which was to the right of the river. The bridge didn't move. The river moved. Y'all ever feel like the river of our culture has changed? I'm not preaching to the same group that I preached to 15 years ago, 14 years ago. I'm not. Culture has changed. Norms have changed. Values have changed. Perceptions have changed. Wisdom has changed. Politics have changed. Eh, business has changed. Generations have changed. So many, when I, I got together a group of pastors uh, for a prayer meeting here in the Rainier Valley, we're all talking about the same thing. Our congregations are divided. Our congregations are so divided because the generations have changed. You've got an older segment, I don't know, 35s and above, who voted, Demo who voted Republican, and then all this younger generation, you know, voting Democrat. And we're the same. And we're all looking at each other like, what? You did what? <laughs> or look at even the church. It's changed so much. And we, we, we talk a lot about the church, and some, we talk a lot about social science, talk, talk a lot about millennials and what the millennial generation's like. And we have a lot of millennials here, and praise God for that. And a lot of people in the cohorts are millennials, and it's awesome. But I've kind of moved beyond that. I, I've, been th I've been asking God actually in the, last, in the last two months, I'm like, God, what's the generation next after the millennials are like? And it's interesting, I was here Friday night, and I was talking with, with Julie and, and Michelle Tang, right? Michelle's right there. Michelle, can you stand up? How old are you, Michelle? Just real quick, how old are you? How old are you, Michelle? I'm not going to embarrass you. 17, okay? So she's the next generation, all right? And I've been kind of wondering, what's the next generation like? We were in this conversation, and I was asking her, what do you think about the church? What do you think about where we're going? Stuff like that. And I said, sometimes there's this debate within our church of like, Roy, you're too outward-centered, or you need to be more inward-centered. And she said, Roy, you know what? Actually, I think maybe, maybe there's a reason. Maybe, maybe you need more, to be more inward-centered. And she said, because when I looked at the, the, uh, the budget report, we were under budget. And then all of a sudden, my world just exploded. I was like, whoa, back up. You are 17 years old, and you actually read the annual report? Who actually read the annual report? Okay? I mean, we got to start there. Who actually read the annual report? This 17-year-old girl did. Not only did she read the annual report, I didn't even read the whole thing. Okay, and then she noticed that in the budget that we were actually short a couple of thousand dollars. Like, you figured that out? She's like, yeah, I was just reading. I was reading it to my mom. <laughs> you know, I was like, what? And the first, then I had to alleviate her fear. I said, actually, we were not short. 
There were some checks that came in that last, in December last week. It just didn't get posted in December because, you know, I mean, you know, just things happen. We don't want to go to the bank, you know. Guy has a life, right? Our treasurer, our assistant treasurer has a life. He doesn't want to go to the bank all the time. And so we posted those in January. So we actually did not, we actually were in the black this year. Okay, so we're, we're doing okay. Okay, alleviate your fears. But that's the next generation coming. You better watch out, right? You better get your game on, millennials, right? How come you're not reading the annual report, figuring out what's going on? Things change. The world changed. And you know, the church is like the bridge. And maybe the church as the church was, maybe like 10, 15 years ago, maybe it was really good at bridging all the social issues and all the political issues. Maybe they, I don't know, maybe they were good at one time, really bridging things to help people connect people with God. And the bridge was really strong. But the bridge cannot say to the river, the river has moved, you need to move back. The bridge cannot yell to the river and say, you need to move back and you need to change and needs, things need to be back where they were so that we can be the strong bridge that we've always been. If the church decides to be that bridge, the church will have the name that the Hondurans gave the bridge, this name, they called it the bridge to nowhere. In other words, it was irrelevant. Why do so many people who were outside of the church call the church irrelevant? because we've forgotten how to build a bridge. We built a bridge 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and it's strong, and it's still standing. But if, you were, but if we are not bridging people to God, in the new era, when things have changed, if we're not bridging, if we're not adapting, if we are not taking our bridge and say, you know what, I'm gonna modify the bridge, and I'm going to extend it out. I'm going to modify the bridge. I'm going to make it stronger. I'm going to modify the bridge. I'm going to reach more people. If we are not changing and adapting, then we will be just like that bridge. Why would I want to go to a church that's going nowhere? I need to wrap this up real quick. This is, this is just so important. Um, you, you, the work that we're doing with the schools, okay, I know you've heard this a million times before. This is, not a, this is not something to get you guys to volunteer or something. This is so important to me. Then did you know, if, if, if you're probably like 25 or younger, you don't know this narrative. But did you know that the, the narrative in the United States, in the vast majority of our country, the narrative is this. Public schools and administrators are the enemies of the church. If you've been coming to SCAC, you probably haven't heard that a lot. But you need to know, because I've lived in Texas, and I've lived in the East Coast, I've lived in the West Coast. The narrative, the overwhelming narrative, is that public schools are liberal brainwashers that want to rob your children of their Christian faith. That has been the narrative for at least 30 or 40 years in the United States. If I came to SCAC and I believed that narrative, and I would have never started a relationship with the public school there. And I would have had us for the last 14 years pray against the public school system if I believed in that biblical worldview, that narrative, that God has somehow been kicked out of the public schools. It's the furthest thing from the truth. We built a bridge, and it's a love fest. One of the teachers left the school last year to go to another church. I've known her for a long time. 
She is that stereotypical, liberal, cynical, does not like Christians, definitely doesn't go to church. <laughs> She's as worldly as you can get, as cynical about the world and cynical about the church as you can get. When I first met her, I could just feel the, don't get close, too close to me, pastor. I could just feel this, this, what are you really here for? You're just trying to get like more people to your church, right? You just want to drop off some tracts or some Bibles, right? That, that's what you really want to do, right? When she left on that last day, because now we've known each other for, for many years now, because we built a bridge, on her last day, she came to me and she said, and I've never seen her so vulnerable. She was almost at tears, almost. And she said, Roy, you're the real deal. She wanted to say that to me. That, that, those were her words. She, she looked at me. She said, Roy, I want you to know. You're the real deal. And that meant everything. Because if we had never built a bridge, and it's a we thing, because so many of you, it's not me, so many of you have taken up leadership roles in the way that we have built a bridge. If we never built a bridge, there would have been a non-believing person who's cynical, doesn't like church, doesn't like Jesus, just doesn't like religion, who would have continued to be entrenched in their ways. Someone needed to build a bridge so that a person who didn't believe in Jesus, who who was cynical about the church, was cynical about religion, cynical about everything in life, they needed to see that there was a real deal out there. Amen? Does that make sense? And we could have spent 14 years arguing over our biblical view and defending it. And I'm so glad we didn't. I'm so glad we built a bridge so that someone over there could see beyond the arguments and see that there is a real deal, that there is a real church, that there is a real and living God named Jesus. Amen? Amen? We need that. So you can keep arguing. You can keep putting your head in the ground and think like nothing's going to happen. What Jesus calls us to is to be the peacemaker. And so one last point. If you're going to be a bridge maker, you've got to touch both sides. That's what's wrong with this bridge. This bridge is not connected to anything. If you're going to be a bridge, you got to be connected. you got to be a bridge. you got to touch both sides. You cannot remain entrenched in just one position. If you don't have any contact with the kind of people that are different from you, if you don't have any kind of relationship with people that think very different from you, it's going to perpetuate your isolation, your judgment, and your condemnation. That's not bridge building. That's wall building. God calls all of us to be peacemakers. And so you've got to get to know people on all different sides of the argument and stop seeing the world in terms of enemies, friends, or black and white. Start seeing everyone, actually, as potential friends and potential partners even to make this world a much, much better place. And so the last question then is that who are you building a bridge to? That's what this series that's what this next four or five weeks is going to be all about. Who are you building a bridge to that maybe you just don't want to? I'll give you more information next week. But who are you building a bridge to? Let's pray. Um, can you have the communion ushers come forward as well? Father, thank you so much for this time together. And thank you that... I'm just so incredibly thankful for this moment that we have together, this last 
hour that we've had together because it is so incredibly confusing, I know, for a lot of us, for me. And the word that you give us today, it's just one line. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And that's our distinctive. And I'm so glad just that we can, that this one woman could see that there was something distinctive about our church and about us. That, whoa, this is different. They are the children of God. They are the real deal. They're not Republican. They're not Democrat. They're not Libertarian. They're not moder- They're not whatever it is. They are the real deal. I'll take that label over anything. And so I know a lot of us are caught up, and, and a lot of us, are, we're all entrenched on different issues and, and things like that. And, and so I just pray we'll continue to be engaged, but also to be challenged to be engaged in a different way, to be actually be peacemakers, instead of just continuing to heap on the arguments. And I pray especially for those who, I, I confess, are, are, are like me. My tendency is just to sit back. My tendency is just to not be involved. My tendency is just to make my world even smaller so I can just take care of the things in my world and not have to worry about all the other stuff. And I pray that you would also wake up those in our congregation at SCAC, the ones that just want to put their head, stick their head in the sand, who think they have better things to think about. But God, you have called us in the same sermon, in your same seminal work, that we are to be the salt and light of the world. We can't do that if we're not out in the world. And so would you challenge us and use these weeks to challenge us, God, that we would be bridge makers, that we would be bridge makers. In order to do that, we've got to touch both sides. We've got to be deeply, deeply connected with the heart of God. We've got to be deeply connected to what, is, what the prejudices and the biases that are going in our own hearts. And we've got to be deeply connected to those that we think are the enemy, those we think that are weird, those things that we just don't want to talk about. But if we're going to be bridge makers, and if we're going to bring the real deal into this world that this world desperately needs to see, then we need to be peacemakers, and we need to be willing to take the risk of building bridges with those that we normally don't. We give this time to you, Father. Thank you for your bread and your blood, your body, that reminds us is a symbol of the bridge that you gave yourself. You didn't come, the message, the message wasn't a bridge, it was your son, Jesus himself, who provided the sacrifice so that we might have connection and communion with God. We who were once so far off and were enemies of God have been brought near, saved, cleansed, healed, reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what you have done for us, what we ingest is meant to be part of our DNA, our soul, so that we may live in that same power and give the gift, the beautiful, graceful gift of reconciliation to others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to serve the communion ushers first, and then after that, you're welcome to come down and make two lines down the middle. And if you want to take some time up here to pray and take communion or go back to your seat, you're welcome to however God leads you to worship.